Okay, so uh, go ahead and turn to 1 John. It's going to be in chapter 2. Now, the last time I spoke on this passage was actually in March. So it's been a long time. So what I want to do is I want to do a review and uh, kind of bring us up to where we are right now, okay? So to understand why John wrote this book, you have to understand that there were false teachers in that church. And many of the books in the New Testament are written as responses to false teaching as well. Um, these teachers were coming into the church and they were deceiving the members with thoughts such as this. These are some of the false views that they were teaching. Uh, one is you can't know God. That's impossible. God did not control creation. It just happened to him. Flesh is evil, but spirit is good. And if you know anything about Gnostics, that would kind of lead you to that. This is the early form of the Gnostics starting at this church. Uh, also, that sin committed in the flesh doesn't matter since it doesn't affect the spirit. Okay? So they could do anything they wanted to and it wouldn't affect their spirit. That was the other thing. Finally, and the worst one was that Jesus was only a spirit and was not God. Okay? Now, in this book, John countered all this by declaring that God is knowable in as much as he's revealed to us. Okay? That he created all things through the power of his hand. That man is completely sinful and his acts are sinful. And that Jesus was eternal, Messiah, sinless, fully God, fully man, and redeemer of all those who believe. John taught that not only was Jesus real, but he was also God. That his death on the cross can save because of that. So these false ideas being spread by these teachers are addressed by John, and we will see his arguments as we make our way through this letter. And it'll be a slow process, but we're, we're looking at what his arguments are. His intent was to help the body to realize that these are false teachings and to realize what the truth is. Now, last time we spoke, we covered verses 1 through 6 in chapter 2, okay? So that's what we're going to do the review on this morning. Let's read uh, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 2, okay? My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now at the beginning of verse 2, what he's doing is he's referring back to what he taught in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. In that passage, John commands them to walk in the light where they can have fellowship with God. He also instructed them to confess their sins to him because he is faithful and just and will forgive sin. John is telling them in chapter 2, verse 1, that the conclusion of all of that is to not sin. This is not unrealistic for John to command because a true follower of Christ doesn't walk in darkness. They don't have a consistent pattern of life in, or consistent pattern of sin in their lives. Rather, a true believer understands this as an encouragement to live righteously. They will confess to God, agreeing with him over the sin in their lives, and be acutely aware of sin 
and rely on God's strength as he sanctifies them. We talked about that this morning quite a bit. We need to understand that we are no longer slaves to sin and can, with God's help, stop the consistent patterns of sin that have entrapped us our entire lives. There is freedom, believe it or not, there's freedom from this in Christ. But we must understand this. Sin is the enemy, and it disrupts fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers. Do not think that you can harbor sin in your life and have fellowship with God. But the good news is that God helps us fight our desire to sin and sanctifies us through his power. Back in chapter 2, John went on in verse 2 to tell us that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What Jesus endured on the cross was awful, but he rose from the dead and now stands in the presence of God and defends his own. The enemy accuses us repeatedly, but Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to us, given to us who follow him. So John commanded us not to continue in sin, but reminded us that Jesus is our advocate when we do. That raises the question, would this cause us to take sin lightly? We've been talking a little bit about that too in Romans. And the answer to that is absolutely not. In fact, it is the understanding of the awfulness of sin and the determination to avoid it in our lives that marks us as believers and followers of Christ Jesus. The truth is that while inevitable, sin should be avoided in a believer's life. We all struggle with sin even though we are, we are redeemed. However, we are no longer slaves to sin and we do not have to sin. If somebody is a slave, they have to do what their master tells them to do. The unsaved have sin as their master. But when we are slave or when we are saved, we are no longer slaves. Sin no longer has control over us. As a recommendation, and I'm not going to read it here, and Darren's going to get to this probably in the next month or two. Study Romans 6, verses 19 through 23, on your own. And that way you can get Paul's explanation of that very fact. Okay? Next, we looked at verses 3 through 6. Now, these false teachers, these early Gnostic teachers, were causing doubts in the minds of the believers there. So John included tests that can be applied to people to see whether they're in the faith. These tests are important for identifying false teachers and false believers, but also provide reassurance for the true believer. Let's read verses 3 through 6. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's, that's tough writing, but it's very true. The results of these tests reveal characteristics that a true believer will have and a false believer will not. 
In this passage, we began to look at two of five characteristics of a true believer, okay? So we looked at these two last time, obedience and Christ-likeness. We'll talk about that in the review just briefly. Today, we're going to focus on love. That's the third characteristic. The last two I'll talk at a future date, whenever that is. That's growth and separation. But the, again, the five characteristics of a true believer are obedience, Christ-likeness, love, growth, and separation. Of course, separation being removing yourself from the world and in walk, not walking in the world. But first, obedience. A true Christian's life will demonstrate obedience to God's commandment. John was very clear about this in verse 3 when he wrote, If you claim to know Christ, the proof of this is in your obedience to his commandments. In verses 4 and 5, John contrasts those who claim to know Christ but do not obey his commandments with those who do obey. Here we see those who claim but don't do, demonstrating that they are not true disciples. This is very true of people who will say anything, but, they don't, but their actions don't back it up. That's why, that's why the, that, that fruit and what things, some things we'll talk about today are very important. Just stating that you are a believer, just stating that you're a Christian, or even saying you're a follower of Christ, doesn't make it so. The belief that once saved, always saved is dangerous when people hide a life of sin behind that. What I mean here is that I'm not teaching that you can lose your salvation. But there are many who think they have saving faith, but their lives do not reflect it. And we don't want to give people that are in that situation false hope. It's better to be truthful about it. True salvation can't be lost. It is held by God himself. But you must examine your life. 2 Corinthians 13.5 is a very important verse to go back to often. I would write it down. I would underline it. Put it on your mirror in the morning. However you want to do it. <clears throat> but it says... So again, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine, to, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. It is not offensive to do this. We are commanded to test ourselves, making sure that we're in the faith. So what is this test? Well, the first is in verses 4 and 5, which I'll read to you again, back in 1 John chapter 2. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anybody obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Well, when you look at these verses, the measuring stick is obedience to his word. Not studying it academically as an intellectual pursuit. I've known a lot of people that do that. But to obey what it says. There are many who admire Jesus. They like to learn about him in theology. 
but are unwilling to enter into that narrow gate, which must be entered through humility and obedience to the Lord. If we keep his commandments, it demonstrates that we belong to him, that we are at peace with him, and that we are in the faith. As Christians, it is very important to have assurance of our salvation. This assurance brings us joy and brings us peace. And here is our peace. We were once enemies of God, but now because we are redeemed through Christ, we are at peace with him. In contrast, without assurance, there is doubt and uncertainty and fear. This is what John found in the church. We can have assurance in our faith because our salvation is not up to us to hold. All right? Here's another great passage that you guys can write down. It's a John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. It reads, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. This is Jesus talking. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. As you can see, back in verses 3 and 5, back in 1 John, John is very clear that if you're obedient, you can have assurance of your faith. Now, finally, last time, we, we looked at verse 6, where John wrote, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. He didn't say should walk as Jesus did. Or maybe, he, maybe you can or aspire to that. He said he must, you must walk as Jesus did. So another attribute, the second attribute here, is Christ-likeness. Just claiming to know Christ doesn't make it true. Titus 1.16 says, They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Obedience seems to go through all of these characteristics, don't they? doesn't it? There has to be obedience. A true Christian makes a practice of abiding in or imitating Christ. If we claim to abide in him, we must walk as he walked. He is our pattern, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live a Christ-centered, Christ-controlled life. How can we learn how to pattern our lives after Jesus? Well, study his life. There are four accounts of his life in the Gospels. We should be very familiar with them. Pray for help. Seek, seek the Lord's help while you're studying. He is faithful to help you when this is your goal because it is his will. Sit under the teaching of God's word taught by faithful teachers. Ask help from your brothers and sisters. Finally, apply what you've learned and move on behind the, the academic and put what you've learned into practice. So that's the review of what we talked about last week, and I made that very short, but it's, it's so deep, we could go through and just do a whole other sermon just on what we did last time. But we're going to continue on today with the next characteristic of a true believer, which is love. 
We're going to look at verses um, 7 through 11 this morning. And let's read that together. I'm going to, I'm going to read it for you, I'm, but uh, let's read it together. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. That's the whole passage that we're going to cover, but we're going to kind of go back. We're going to back up and start talking about it verse by verse, okay? So starting in verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, and I'm going to read this to you again just so we can get it. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. It can be a very confusing passage if you just read it and look at, at it at its face value. But the context here is love. The word used by John in verse 10 for love is the verb form of agape, agapeo which is defined as unconditional love, preferential love that is chosen and acted out by the will. It is not based, I'm sorry, it is not love based on the goodness of the beloved or upon natural affinity or emotion. Rather, this is benevolent love that, is all, that always seeks the good of the beloved. There's no emotion here. This is a spiritual love that you have for others. It allows you actually to love people that are not lovable. In verse 7, John states that he is not writing a new commandment. But then in verse 8, he states that he is writing a new commandment. This seems like an apparent contradiction, doesn't it? But here's the explanation. The concept of loving one another was taught in the Old Testament. And in that sense, it is an old commandment. Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a, bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And Paul quoted from the Ten Commandments and this verse that we just read in Romans. So this is going to be in Romans. I want you to turn here. Romans 13.8-10. And we'll read this together. Romans 13, 8 through 10. All right. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
it is the in, um, it, I'm sorry, verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. I missed an important verse there. Love is the fulfillment of the law. There is a great link between obedience to the Lord and loving him and loving others. This is why Paul states that love is the fulfillment of the law. If you love other people and you love God, you will not break that moral law. Now, back in the Old Testament, we see lots of examples of people loving one another. One example that came to my mind is Joseph showing love and compassion to his brothers who had treated him so poorly. Another is David's love for Jonathan. Love was a concept that Christians would have learned, and we still do, from the teachings in the Old Testament. Referring to this command, love your neighbor, John writes in verse 7, which you have had since the beginning. John is not referring here to the beginning or creation, or even the, the beginning of the law of Moses. What he's talking about here is the beginning of their Christian lives. We see this as evidence in verse 24 of the same chapter back in 1 John 2, verse 24. It says, See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. One of the first things that a Christian learns to do is to love other people in this fashion. Not the brotherly love. Phileo, I think it is. Or the, you know, sexual kind of love, obviously. But this is a love that goes beyond all other loves. And it really, at the core of it, is demonstrated in our obedience because we love God. And it's changed our lives. So, the love taught to them from the start of their walks was to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind. In that case, it was an old commandment to love. But even though the duty of love was taught in the Old Testament, it was fully manifested in Jesus. In verse 8, the Greek word translated new defines something fresh in essence and quality. The newness of the commandment is not in the words, but in the illustration of love shown through Jesus. Continuing in verse 8, when John writes, its truth is seen in him. He is saying the new commandment was love demonstrated in Jesus. So the newness is not in the command to love, which has been with us for a very, very long time, but rather the love manifested in the person of Christ. Jesus' love is the one way that he revealed the nature of God to us. We can see this evidenced by Jesus' actions on the night of the Last Supper. Let's turn to John 13. And when you get there, we're going to be reading 1 through 17. It's a large passage. We could preach probably a dozen sermons on this. But there's certain things I want to point out to you through this passage. So, John 13, 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this, leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, um, to, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, and he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. This you could tell Peter's personality is coming through here. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet, but their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he had said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And like I said earlier, there are entire sermons that can be preached just from this passage. There's a lot there. But what I wanted you to see here is how Jesus humbled himself by doing what the lowliest servant of a household would normally do to the feet of the guests who are coming in for a dinner. Interestingly, in verse 3, Jesus states, um, or John states, that Jesus knew that God had put all things under his power. So the next thing that we might expect Jesus to do, if we didn't know any better, is that he would get up, grab an army, and take over Jerusalem and kick the Romans out. This is what they thought the Messiah would do. But what did he do? He humbled himself. He demonstrated to the disciples that love is humble service to others. Not so that others will see what we do and praise us for it, but just to do it out of love and to have service towards one another. To understand the standard that Jesus set for us, we should look at the, what the word says in Philippians 2, 6-8. I'll read this for you. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I should read it the way Paul wrote it. Even death on a cross. They knew what a death on a cross meant. Jesus humbled himself, and although he never stopped being God, he didn't use his power for personal advantage. Rather than demand honor and privilege and glory that was rightly due him as God, he willfully endured the worst possible humiliation of hanging naked on a cross in tremendous pain and without breath. 
He was obedient in this and did it because of his great love. Now, when Jesus was asked, which are the two greatest commandments? I'm sure you're all familiar with this. He responded by quoting parts of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. In Matthew, we see this account. Let's turn to Matthew 22. We're going to look at verses 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? This was um, a, a, what they call a scribe, somebody who was learned in the law. So he said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And in verse 40 again, Jesus says that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And that should prompt you to say, well, what does that mean? It means that all that is expected of believers, God's moral law, all of what's taught in the Old Testament, hung on those two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. In other words, with every fiber of your being. Also, love your neighbor as yourself. By loving this, or loving like this, we can obey that moral law. But the problem is that we often have divided loyalty between the things of this world and God. Also, we often do not love our neighbors out of petty selfishness and pride. That's the struggle right there. Back to our passage, John states in verse 8, its truth is seen in him and in you. Now he's lumping us in there. Now we've already talked about the love that was manifest in Jesus But here John includes us there too. And so what does that mean? Why are we there too? The love of Jesus is also manifested in the lives of believers. It is what makes us a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Even though we fail to love consistently, we understand that we are sinful and we confess those sins right? We rely on God to help us live a life that honors his name through our love and obedience. This love demonstrated in our humility and the spiritual fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in the believer's life demonstrates this to the world. As what we do as believers is out of, lo- out of the love for God and the love for others. Love motivates us to walk and is evidence in our salvation since only converted people can think this way. A non-converted person can't think this way. It's why John always says we're walking in the light. They walk in the darkness. We see what we know. They can't see anything. Jesus said in John 13, 34 through 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. 
so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. People will know that you follow Christ by your love for others, by what you do. Not what you claim, but by what you do. This kind of love that you show others is not just any kind of love. Because there's a lot of love out there. People talk about love all over the place. There's love signs all over the place in Virginia. But this is the kind of love that was demonstrated by Jesus in his life, his obedience unto death. All right, well, back in John, 1 John chapter 2, looking at verse 8 again, at the end of the verse, he states, the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. What does he mean by this? Well, the opposite of love is hate. And hate is evidence of darkness and stumbling. Light and love go together. As we make the practice of loving the brethren, our lives demonstrate unselfish devotion, a quality of love, not emotional, but spiritual. We devote ourselves to love others, become what they should be in their Christian life. Yes, don't be afraid to help your brothers and sisters in this manner. You don't want them to be just good moral people. You want them to grow in their Christian life, and we're to help each other with that. The proof of a true Christian's profession is light and love, obedience and loving the brethren. There's the evidence. Love not only is the greatest witness of a true believer, but also the greatest assurance that a believer can have of their salvation. It demonstrates it to the world, and it demonstrates it to yourself at the same time. There's great joy in that. The false teachers claimed some kind of special knowledge that they had. These are the Gnostic teachers. They, believe, they claimed to have this very close relationship with the deity, but what this produced in them was a proud dislike for those who were, in their eyes, unenlightened. It's like almost a spiritual pride that they had. Let's look at verses 9 through 11 and talk about the next characteristic, or the, the next part of this passage. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause of stumbling for him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and he does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In these three verses, John is contrasting one who loves with one who hates. When John writes, hates his brother, well, what does that mean? In, re in real terms, what does it mean to hate your brother? Well, it could be actual hate, aggressively attacking somebody. It could also be, and it's more likely to be, indifference for others. Not caring about their needs, not caring about their eternal destiny. In other words, not giving really a second thought to them. It could mean to attempt to lead somebody astray or to cause problems in the church, to cause divisions. These are all things that can, can be evidence of hate. 
Now, those who love and obey God's word express selfless love to fellow believers. And their lives can be shown as being fully transformed when they do this. They're not going to try to cause others to fall into sin. Jesus speak to, speaks to this in Matthew 18, 6. He said, But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. In the immediate context, of course, of this passage, Jesus is referring to little ch the little children that are standing around him. But in the broader context, the principle here is about causing others to sin or to stumble, which is evidence of hating them. The verb the Lord used here means to trap, entice, or influence someone to sin. This behavior shows great hate toward another. And Jesus said it's better for the one who traps to experience a horrible death rather than to do one of this to Christ's own. These trappers exist in the church. Don't think that they don't. They are wolves and work to tempt the sheep to sin. Back in verses 9 through 11 in 1 John again, the language here indicates someone who claims to be a Christian but lives a lifestyle of hate or habitually hates others. This is why John states that they are walking in the darkness. And I brought up indifference as a point because a lot of times people will read this and think, well, I don't hate anybody. But just the fact of you don't have any love for them, you just, you're indifferent to them, especially somebody in need, that's, that's bad, that's hate towards them. Walking in the darkness is not where true children of God walk. And this type of lifestyle and consistent hate is evidence that they are not even saved, even if they attend church and number themselves with the body. A lifestyle of consistent sin and consistent hate doesn't give any evidence. This is not saying that you may occasionally hate, which is sin, which we confess of and we repent of, Rather, it is somebody, again, who habitually hates others. It's an important thing to understand. The difference between a true believer and a false one is that one confesses and repents, while the other continues to live a life of sin, hiding it, clinging to it, not wanting to give it up. That's why we walk in the light. When I taught this through as um, our adult Bible study, Someone brought up the point of, you know, when we walk in the light, what it made them think of is walking through the forest at night, one without a light, a flashlight, one with a flashlight. With a flashlight, we can see the obstacles. With, when walking in the light, we can see the temptations, we can see the sin that, that's going on in our lives, we repent of that. But when you walk in the dark, you don't know what you're going to stumble over, how you're going to hurt yourself. You don't actually see it in yourself. And that's, that's kind of that, that contrast there that John talks about a lot in this book. So if we want to live a life of love, well, how do we do this? One way, and I would argue probably the most important way, is to be in consistent prayer for them. All your brothers and sisters here in this room have needs to be prayed for. Here's an idea for you. I've done this before, and it's great. Think of each person in this church. 
just work your way through the aisles where people normally sit. Write down their names and pray for them. Pray for the things you know about. Pray for the things that you don't know about, that God will just work in their lives. This will probably expand maybe to others in, in your life. You write their names down too and begin to pray for them. It is impossible to hate somebody who you're praying for. It just builds your love for them. Maybe you don't like somebody or something that they, they're doing. Pray for the Lord to help you love that person. If this is obedience and will change your heart. Next, you can love them by communicating interest in their lives and their spiritual growth. These are conversations that go beyond interests that you share, but get to the heart of the matter. Asking somebody, how can I be praying for you? Don't be afraid to do that. Or tell me about your walk. What are you studying right now on your own? And so on. Those conversations have a much larger impact than talking about the weather or sports or anything else. You can also show love by taking care of physical needs. This one can be somewhat hard since people, or many people actually, find it difficult to let other people help. People love to help more than they love to receive help. It's a struggle for people. Uh, and sometimes you may just have to do it. You may just have to help them anyways. Be persistent. Um, it, just being there for them can be a big impact for them and, and really demonstrate your love for them. Lastly, you can show love by giving time to somebody. This is the most costly one. Time is your most precious commodity, and giving it to somebody else is evidence of love for them. It's actually very much easier to give some money or to drop a meal or say uh, a quick, I'll pray for you, and all those, sometimes these are good and sometimes they're necessary. But taking time from your schedule and sitting with somebody who needs someone to talk to demonstrates that you consider them important, that you love them. Loving others can be very hard to do. Someone describes certain believers as porcupines. He said, they have some good points, but they're very hard to get close to. And it's so true. I have run into many believers that are hard to love, and I've failed to love them. I've even hated them and been very frustrated with them. Um, and I've had to repent of that and confess that as sin. Uh, so what we need to ask ourselves, how can we approach loving someone such as this? And you'll run into many in church as you, as you go through your lives. First... We can't expect that if we give love to others, that they'll return it back. It's not always a tit-for-tat thing. Sometimes you just give, and they take, and that's it. However, making sure to communicate to them your love for them can go a long way to breaking down the walls between you. Second, it takes preparation to exercise love. We don't have that skill naturally. We don't naturally love the unlovable. We naturally do love people that, that love us. What did Jesus say? He said, you know, it's easy to love people that love you back. It's difficult to love those that don't love you. It takes time and prayer for others that God, so that God can change your heart and prepare you to minister in love to the brethren, especially those that are hard to love. And trust me when I say this, that when you're doing this, you're changing you as much as you're changing them. 
We have to strive to make sure we love one another. It's very easy, since we are sinful, to allow hate and especially indifference to seep into the body. We get busy with our lives. We don't want to spend the time. But we can't be lazy in our Christian life. We must be actively seeking to apply what we learn in God's word. We live in such a consumer culture where we just sit back and allow things to come into our lives. TV, movies, entertainment. What it can lead to, though, is it can lead, when that seeps into the church, a very lazy Christians who don't want to do God's word, don't want to be obedient, because it requires something of you. More than your money, more than just your attendance. Now again, we come back to these verses in, in John 13, 34 through 35. I said, I said this earlier. Jesus said, A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so that you will love. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So love, loving others, was not something new. But Jesus manifested love in his life and in his obedience. As believers, this love of, that Jesus had is demonstrated in the way that we love others. Our obedience in this demonstrates that we walk in the light and belong to the Lord. As believers, we should be striving to honor the Lord with our lives. And our love for others is a big part of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that spoke about one thing, one thing in particular, love. And Father, I pray that we'll all be convicted in our own lives in whatever way it needs to be, Lord, that we will demonstrate love towards others, our families, our co-workers, the people that we come in contact with, to sacrifice our time, to sacrifice our resources, to show them that we belong to you and that we love them and that we want them to know you so that they can experience that love that you give so freely to us. I pray that this will impact, I know that this, your word will impact us as we go out into our lives after today. I thank you for this time that we could share your word. In Jesus' name, amen.